God does care about the little things. And I think sometimes we almost fail to ask him for those little things because we think he, it's, it's too small for him. Uh, the fact is, God cares about everything. Uh, you ought to be praying about your parking spot. You ought to be praying about the things that they really don't matter, but they do. And we're grateful for that. I'm going to dismiss the children's, the children's church. And actually, before I do, uh, I'm going to mention in the sermon, but Amy has led Vacation Bible School this week. And there have been uh, many other individuals who did. But would y'all just express appreciation to Amy before she goes out with the children? Now, if there are any kids who would like to go to Children's Church, you see Miss Amy over there in the corner, and you're welcome to send the kids out there. It is such an honor to have each of you with us this morning as you've chosen to worship with us. I do believe that uh, very firmly that a service like this is merely a rehearsal for what will actually take place when we get to heaven. Gathered each week in this place, we see people from very different backgrounds that come and worship because we find common ground at the cross of Jesus Christ. I am especially reminded of this today, as I just mentioned, as we've had dozens of young people all this week who have participated in our Vacation Bible School here at the church. Among them, there, there we see different ethnicities from different communities, and all along the way, they're surrounded by people from different generations, yet we find common ground with them at the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, there are more students who now share in that common ground because of what happened at Vacation Bible School, as we had several individuals who responded to God's grace this past week and have now become followers of Jesus Christ. First, we praise the Lord for that blessing, but we also want to say thank you. I just mentioned Amy, but there are many others who participated, who served, who prayed, I am so grateful for each of you in helping to make VBS happen. Well, today will be the last sermon in this series that I have been working through for a long time now. Uh, The past two series have actually been, been very similar to each other in nature, with one dealing specifically with those who personally encountered Jesus Christ, like the woman at the well, or the woman who had been caught in adultery, or the ten lepers, or the man who was carried by his four friends yet walked away on his own two feet. And then this current series has been entitled Eyewitness Views, as we saw people who were firsthand witnesses to the transforming work of Jesus Christ. Today, I'm going to close out this series using a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I've already read it to you once, but we will be looking at it again, so I invite you, if you would like, to turn in your Bibles to that passage already, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Have you ever been an eyewitness to an event? Actually, I have been an eyewitness on multiple occasions. One such time, I was in a Walmart one evening in Pennsylvania with my wife and one of my infant children. If I remember correctly, I think it was Alyssa when we became unfortunate eyewitnesses to an event. We were walking through the health and beauty section when we passed by an individual wearing female 
Islamic attire that covered their face completely. As the individual walked past us, I remarked to my wife, there is no way that that is a woman. Well, we continued with our shopping, and when we got to the register, we very quickly became aware that what we saw was definitely not a woman. Instead, as we approached the register, we found this man holding a gun to the head of the cashier attempting to rob the store. As customers ran the other direction back into different parts of the store, the individual calmly walked out of the store with a few hundred dollars, but nobody was hurt. When the police arrived, they had to interview everyone who had seen anything, and our quick trip to Walmart with our infant child turned into an almost two-hour event as we waited for our turn to be interviewed. Unfortunately, I don't think that what I shared was of much help to the police that night. The reason is we really didn't see enough to know enough. Let me suggest to you today that the worldwide Christian church is overflowing with people who are not much help to the investigation. They've seen bits and pieces of what's happening, but they aren't the most valuable of witnesses. It hasn't impacted them all that much. It's just something that happened, and they went on with their life mostly unaffected. Well, I want you to know today that God desires very much for us to be affected by a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And I believe that today's passage addresses this. I read to you already from 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11, but I want to read it again. I will tell you that this passage is one that I have been wrestling with now for about two weeks. There are some hard truths in this passage, but there are also some things that are very clear and important to believers today. So listen to what it says. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Now, I'll be honest with you this morning. This passage comes across almost as being a little bit ugly and intolerant. I told you that I've wrestled with this for the past several weeks, and I've come to the conclusion that in a manner, it is intolerant. And in another manner, it is not intolerant. But either way, it's not such a bad thing. I know that this may be a little bit contrary to what the world teaches us today. But tolerance is not necessarily a biblical thing. For example, on humanity's part, we read in Revelation 2.20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. This is God addressing the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
That is Jesus declaring that I have this against you. You tolerate. Tolerance is not necessarily a good thing. And then the scriptures are also very clear that God will not tolerate wickedness. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 declares that your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And in Psalm 101 verse 4 we read, the perverse of heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with what is evil. And in Joshua, as the people are being called to choose for themselves this day whom you will serve, they are cautioned in Joshua 24, 19 that they need to make sure they know what they're committing to. They cannot half-heartedly follow God. So Joshua says, he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. In other words, he will not tolerate your wickedness. But there is another side to this, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. But I want to start with verse 9 in our passage this morning. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. The first thing this suggests is that there was another letter that had been previously sent to the church there in Corinth, written by the Apostle Paul. We do not have a record of that. We are in 1 Corinthians here. We later will have 2 Corinthians. But according to that statement, there was something prior to 1 Corinthians. It is safe to assume, although we do not have that, it is safe to assume that what he wrote in that first letter was likely very similar to what we read in this letter and in 2 Corinthians as well. He has invested in this church. He has developed friendships within this community. And he is hearing rumors about certain things that are taking place since he left their city. These rumors concern him greatly. So seeing himself almost as a spiritual father to these folks, he calls them out, continuing to help them develop in their faith even after he's gone. Some of the things that he addresses in the earlier chapters of this book include issues with unity. There was dispute over whether you follow Paul or Apollos, both individuals who were leaders within the church, both pointing people to Jesus Christ. And Paul is basically saying, why are you fighting over those things? The fact is, we both follow Jesus. So why do you fight over petty things? He also talked about spiritual discernment and the work of the Holy Spirit in that. He addresses the fact that the wisdom of this world is different from the wisdom of the church because the wisdom of the church actually ought to come from that Holy Spirit, which, by the way, fits the idea of tolerance. The wisdom of this world says that we ought to be tolerant of all things, but the Spirit says different. Anyways, these don't say much about sexual immorality. But earlier in chapter 5, we do get an idea of what Paul is addressing. In verses 1 and 2, we read, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. There's that word again. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? And have put out of your fellowship the man 
who has been doing this. And if this doesn't describe the culture in which we live today, then I'm not sure if there's anything else that would. I realize that it may not be the exact same sin, but it is the mentality that embraces all kinds of sexual sin. We're proud of how tolerant we have become. We're not old-fashioned. We're not judgmental. We're not all the things that the world hates. But the truth is that if it was sin in the scripture, if it was wrong previously, then it is still sin today. It is still wrong. And it still carries the same consequence. I pray that this church, as well as the church as a whole, will not hold fast to the tolerant beliefs of our culture, but rather will hold fast to the truth of God's word. Paul feels the need to clarify his statement that he's already made. He's already warned them not to associate with those who practice sexual immorality, but he wants to make sure that they really understand what he meant. So he adds these words. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave that world. In other words, what he's saying is everywhere you go, you're going to come across individuals who are immoral, who are greedy, who are sexually immoral, who are idolaters, those who are deceitful. But as long as you live in a fallen world, such people will exist. The problem is not those outside the church, though. You see, it's so often we'll hear a message about those who are sexually immoral or those who are greedy, and, and our thought is those outside the church. But what if the message is about those inside the church? What if those inside the church who are bearing the name of Jesus Christ are choosing to do the very same things that we declare we hate about those outside the church? And the Apostle Paul says, this is not about them. This is about us. He adds, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. In other words, one who is a part of the body of Christ, who takes on the name of Christ, yet is sexually immoral, a greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. The problem is not those who are outside of the church yet living in sin. The problem is when you surround yourself with those who have lowered the standard of Christian living and that somehow becomes a part of our own lives as well. Now implied within this verse is the idea that God has great expectations for his people. If you claim to be a brother or sister in Christ, yet you continue in your sexual immorality, your greed, your idolatry, your dishonesty, or your alcoholism, then something is tragically wrong. You have settled for a false version of Christianity that gives you the hope of eternal life, yet allows you to remain in your sin until the day of judgment comes. You have become like the church of Laodicea, as recorded in Revelation chapter 3, 
who was defined as lukewarm, so disgusting that God was about to spew them out of his mouth, and that is not okay. I referenced a passage earlier that I want to go back to for a moment. It's found in Joshua chapter 24. I want you to listen to it in its entirety, beginning in verse 14. I only read you one verse, but I want you to hear the interaction that takes place. Joshua 24, beginning in verse 14, says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. You know, if we stopped right there, we'd have a great celebration. Man, you've got all these people, a whole nation that is declaring, we will serve the Lord. That's what the church would do right now. We would celebrate that moment. Joshua, on the other hand, argues with the people. It's not that he wants to talk them out of anything. He simply wants to make sure they understand what they're getting into. It says this, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. You just told us to choose. We chose, and now you're going to tell us you are not able to serve the Lord? He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. The idea is that when you choose to follow the Lord, there is the expectation that you will be changed. You will be a holy vessel just as he is a holy God because God will not tolerate anything less. I, don't, I don't, do want to give you one word of encouragement, but also caution with this. This may seem like a little bit of a theology lesson on the Wesleyan Church, but I like the fact that we can all somewhat relate to what I'm about to share. First, the Wesleyan Church, along with many other denominations, believes that an individual is saved, they are initially sanctified at the very moment that they surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. The moment you pray, the moment you say, God, I'm yours, the moment you say, Lord, forgive me of my sin, we are saved. That's a great thing, as even this morning, we celebrate the fact that multiple children made that decision this past week at VBS. But that is not the end of the spiritual journey. Following what's called initial sanctification, initially saved, we are to experience what's called 
progressive sanctification. This is the journey of becoming progressively more and more like Jesus Christ. This is the idea that the moment you say, God, forgive me of my sins, typically you're still struggling with some of the sins that have enslaved you in the past. But you are progressively, every day, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And what happens is the sin that was in the past gets further into the past. You leave it behind. You don't have to continue to do the same things. It is a journey. The reality is that we have lived in sin for a long time. And it often takes a great deal of time to completely leave those things in our past. In other words, I'm not perfect just because I said some prayer. Now I am progressively being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And there is another aspect of this. It's called, um, uh, man, I just lost it, uh, entire sanctification. I'm not going to focus on that one this morning. But here's where so many of us run into trouble with that progressive sanctification issue. We're not progressing. We're okay with the fact that we're sinful. In fact, we've kind of justified it as something that we've always done, or it's just the way I am. We've become okay with it because others are okay with it. We've become okay with it because others aren't pushing beyond that either. But I go back to where we began. Regardless of how well the world or even the church will tolerate your sin. God will not tolerate it. Are you progressing in your faith? Are you pressing on to be the person that God created you to be? I believe today that we serve a holy God. But as we serve that holy God, we ought to be becoming more and more like him every day. So here's the hope. If you're not there yet, remember that it's a journey. It's okay if you're not there yet. But here's the caution so closely connected with it. If you're not making progress, then you're not really in the process of change. In that case, you're more of a bystander than a participant in this journey. Get up. Let's move. God has great expectations for you. But you know how all this works. If you spend enough time at the garbage dump, you'll start to smell like garbage. Anybody ever been there? In the Old Testament, God instructed the Israelites to be set apart from the nations. They were to have nothing to do with them. They were not to intermarry with them. They were to be different, not compromising in any way. We call this the great separation. In the New Testament, it's not all that different. In Ephesians 5.11, we read, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. And a passage that we've used often from 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 through 5, it says, But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, 
unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And so often we stop right there and we think that's the world we live in. But there is a word of instruction to the church after that. Have nothing to do with such people. Again, the purpose of such separation is not to arrogantly say that we are better than others, but rather it is to keep us from walking the same path that others choose to walk. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You don't need to look down on those who choose to remain in their sin, but you certainly don't want to follow in their footsteps. Paul's intention of these statements is, First, to keep the community pure. And to be honest, this is one of the greatest struggles for me as a pastor. There are all kinds of voices that are out there trying to tell you what being a Christian should look like. There are all kinds of people that are out there leading, but they're not leading well. So I worry about who you as a church, as people that I care about, I worry about who you will listen to. It was in the news this past week that a Canadian megachurch pastor was being charged with sexual assault. This doesn't even get into the heretical teachings that so many pastors participate in on such a regular basis. And with the advent of media and social media, man, you can hear all kinds of preachers anytime you want. Like a parent who wants to protect their child. I want to protect you. But while I can't protect you from all of the wolves that are out there, I can at least make sure that you are aware of what matters most. Listen to me. Regardless of how inspirational or charismatic a preacher may be, if what they're saying does not measure up with the word of God, then run. You certainly don't want to allow their theology to invade your life. Be like the Bereans who were noted as being of more noble character because they heard what the preacher said, but they didn't just accept it. They went home and compared it to the word of God to make sure that it lined up with what God had already said. I told you the reason for Paul encouraging this separation was one to keep the community pure. But there is another reason it connects with my final point for you today. He also encouraged the great separation in hopes that sinners might be redeemed. This is the great opportunity that sits in front of us today. I told you earlier that there's another side to God's tolerance one that is full of grace and that is so inviting. I told you God is intolerant of sin and he is intolerant of sin. But think about what Jesus did. Jesus himself chose to eat with sinners. He loved on the people that were in the midst of their sin. And there is a sense of, I love them in spite of what they are doing. 
while Paul is telling the church to stay away from those who practice sexual immorality and all these other sorts of sin, he doesn't mean that you should stay away from those in the world. The fact is they need you. Jesus, I told you he ate with sinners. Do you know what he did? While he was with them, he would show them incredible grace. But by the end of the conversation, he would be telling them things like, now go and sin no more. He showed them grace, recognizing that they needed that grace, but he called them to something different. The truth is that God longs for nothing more than for all of humanity to find freedom and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, to receive eternal life. And on eight occasions in the Old Testament, we read the same thing over and over again. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Well, Paul knew that Jesus Christ was the only hope that the world had. But he also wanted to make sure that if people followed Jesus, then they knew what they were getting into. It's kind of like the church of Laodicea that I mentioned earlier. They've become lukewarm. What's so bad? What's so disgusting about being lukewarm? There are probably many answers to that question, but there's one in particular that stands out to me. Imagine for a moment that you have a brother or sister who is enslaved by alcohol or some other form of sexual immorality. They know that it is defeating them, and they desperately want to know that there's a way out. They've heard that Jesus can set them free. Did you know Jesus is all about setting people free? But then they look at your life and they see that you are still enslaved by the same demons that they currently struggle with. And they begin to wonder, maybe Jesus can't truly set me free. But he can. Listen to this. A changed life becomes a great tool for reaching the lost. You remaining in your sin, you staying the way you were before you experienced Christ does no favors to the body of Christ. There is a world that desperately needs to know that someone can set me free. And that someone is Jesus. Do you ever look at the rest of the world and think to yourself that they need Jesus? If you do, then you're right. <laughs> but often the tool that God uses to introduce them to Jesus is someone like you. When you allow God to transform you, you give hope to a world around you that desperately needs that hope. You simply being what God created you to be gives hope to them. Because if they can do it, then maybe God can do it in me too. We had an individual in our church in Pennsylvania who had been very, he had wasted most of his life. He was 35. From the age of 21 to 35, he was either drunk or high every single moment. 
At the age of 35, he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And he began to leave that life behind. I will tell you, his name's Brian. He has never gone back to that lifestyle since then. I had him share his story with the church and it was well received. And there were people that came that had been a part of his life for a long time before. And there was fruit immediately, but there was one individual in particular that did not respond that day. His name was Robbie. Robbie had been watching this entire time. He had walked alongside Brian for many years and he knew what Brian was like. About two years after Brian had decided he would follow Jesus Christ and his life was genuinely changed, Robbie showed up one day and he said, I've been watching to see if what you had was really real. He said, if God could change your life, maybe he could change mine too. Robbie gave his life to Christ and he served the Lord until the day that he died. I believe today that God wants to change the world around us, but in order to do so, he needs to change the people who have already called themselves believers in Jesus Christ. If you have received Christ, your life ought to be different. Live like it is. Allow God to be the Lord of everything in you. Romans 12 verse 2 instructs us, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Will you allow God to transform your life? Will you be the eyewitness view giving the world around us a glimpse of what could happen if Jesus truly became the Lord of your life. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, oh, we are so grateful for the salvation that has been made available to us. More than likely, everyone in this room at some point or another has prayed a prayer that says, God, forgive me of my sins. But Lord, it is also likely that some of us have remained in those sins long afterwards. Father, forgive us again. Father, I pray that you would transform us so that those patterns would be a part of our past, not the present nor the future. Father, I pray today that you would make us a light to the community around us. Make us a testament of hope so that the rest of the world can know that if God could change us, if God could change the people in this room, then God could surely change them as well. Father, I pray that you would set us apart as holy vessels that will represent you in the world around us. We give you praise for what you're going to do through your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to know today, I believe in you as a church. I believe that God wants to do great things through you as the body of Christ. Will you allow him to do that? I hope the answer is yes.
Thank you for being with us. We don't take an offering here at the church as a lot of churches do where they pass an offering plate. Instead, as you leave, you will have the opportunity. There'll be individuals at each of the exits that will have an offering plate. And if you'd like to give, you are welcome to. It is such a blessing to have you with us today. Go in peace. Come back and see us next week if you can.